paraphrase is especially helpful when you come into a narrative such as that which is given to us in this very vivid scene uh, from the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17, beginning at verse 16 following. While Paul was waiting for them, that is, Silas and Timothy, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all of the idols he saw everywhere throughout the city. He went to the synagogue for discussions with the Jews and the devout Gentiles. He spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had an encounter with some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. Their reaction when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection was, he is a dreamer, he's pushing some foreign religion. But they invited Paul to the forum at Mars Hill. Come and tell us more about this new religion, they said, for you are saying some rather startling things, and we want to hear more. I should explain that all of the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time in discussing the latest new ideas. So Paul, standing before them at Mars Hill Forum, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I noticed that you are very religious, for as I was walking, I saw your many altars, and one of them had this inscription on it, to the unknown God. You have been worshiping him without knowing who he is, and now I wish to tell you about him. He made the world and everything in it, and since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in man-made temples and human hands cannot minister to his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything and satisfies every need there is. He created all the people of the world from one man, Adam, and scattered the nations across the face of the earth. He decided beforehand which should rise and fall and when. He determined their boundaries. His purpose in all of this is that they should seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and are. And as one of your own poets says it, we are the sons of God. If this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol made by men from gold or silver or chipped from stone. God tolerated man's past ignorance about these things, but now he commands everyone to put away idols and worship only him. For he has set a day for justly judging the world by the man he has appointed and has, a, and has pointed him out by bringing him back to life again from the dead. When they heard Paul speak of the resurrection of a person who had been dead, some laughed, but others said, we want to hear more about this. That ended Paul's discussion with them. But a few joined him and became believers. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the city council, and a woman named Damaris, and others. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word.
I was reading last night about a little boy and a little girl who were arguing about the Bible. One was saying that the last book in the Bible was Timothy. And the other one was saying, oh, silly, everyone knows that the Bible begins at Genesis and ends at Revolutions. Uh, well, there's a good bit of truth that has come from the little slip of the child. Uh, there are a lot of revolutions that occur. One of them we are told about in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts when Paul had to hit the city of Philippi and where class barriers begin to tumble and where there are people who come into a knowledge of Christ as Savior and Lord uh, as class distinctions are wiped out under the Lordship of Christ, where a slave girl who had been possessed of an evil spirit can take the goblet at Holy Communion and take from it and pass it to a woman who is rich and a seller of purple fabric. And the seller of purple fabric can take it and pass it on to a sturdy Roman civil servant who had been the chief of the prison there. From Philippi, we see Paul as he journeys on to Thessalonica. We see also a riot that ensues there as he proclaims and preaches the gospel. We see him go into Berea, and we see there the people as he enters into the synagogues as is his custom to take those who have a knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures and persuade them to see how Jesus of Nazareth is the anointed one of God who fulfilled all that had been predicted in the prophets and the patriarchs and the Psalms concerning the Messiah. This usually created uh, a rift. There were those who rejected Paul out of hand. There were those who, has, who accepted his message. We are told that the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. We are people whose faith is based in what God has revealed, not only in nature, but above all, what God has revealed in scripture. John Calvin says that Scripture is like spectacles. You look at nature about you and you see the art of God, you see his handiwork. But this does not tell you about the heart of God, nor about his love, nor about his plan of salvation. There have been some very evil men who were lovers of nature. And nature itself is not sufficient until we put on the spectacles of scripture and then we can look at nature and we can see God's hand in it and that it is speaking, telling us about God's uh, glory. Now, Paul left Berea. He went uh, from there to Athens because evidently as is, was his usual experience, the Jews had created a strife and it was necessary for him to get out of the uh, city of Berea. And so he went on to Athens, and he waited in Athens to be joined there by Silas and by Timothy. We are told that while Paul was waiting, he looked about the city of Athens. Some of us have been at Athens. And if you have, you have seen one of the most incredibly remarkable cities on the face of the whole planet Earth. Here you see the residue of all that human genius could have ever put into art, 
When you stop and think about what happened, one of the greatest and most decisive battles of all of human history occurred 490 years before the birth of Christ. When 11 men looked out on the plain of Marathon and knew that they were going to be engaged in battle by the Persians, and you know the famous story of how the battle was engaged and how the enemy of the Athenians were fought back at the beaches and made their way to their boats and sailed down the coast to get close as they could to Athens and how a runner went that 22-mile stretch to bring the good news that a defeat had been levied against the enemy and for the city of Athens not to surrender. Athens did not surrender. There were 50 golden years there in the city of Athens, which is associated with such giants of thought as Aristotle and Socrates and Plato, such men of oratory as Demosthenes, such men of skill as Pericles, here you find the rarest human genius at making the best that can be made out of grammar and human speech, the best that can be chipped out of marble and stone. And Paul comes into this city. The city has long since been conquered by the Romans. The leading city is now in Corinth, but Athens is still an intellectual place. And Paul was no mean person intellectually. He was a person of considerable brilliance. Paul goes and his heart is stirred. He is exasperated when he looks at all of the idols that are in the city of Athens. Someone says that it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. Some man had evidently been the recipient of some blessing from heaven. He couldn't figure out which one of all of the gods to thank. Not even in the great Parthenon of gods. And so he erected an altar and a sacrifice and put an inscription on it to an unknown god. And Paul used that as his lead into his sermon. He had discussed with the Jews and with Gentile believers in the God of the Bible, the claims of Jesus to be the Messiah, Paul tried to persuade these Athenians about the true and the living God. But they had a court called Areopagus, and it was necessary for a visiting preacher to get a license, so to speak, to put forth any new God. They had a lot of gods, but you had to go to get a license. And so Paul was brought before the Areopagus, and he was told that he could speak in behalf of this foreign deity as they spoke of Jesus. They really thought there were two deities. One was Jesus, and the other deity was resurrection, because Paul was speaking about Jesus and the resurrection, and they got a little mixed up. At any rate, they invited Paul to speak. 
And Paul goes to a place, and if you go to Athens, you can see a beautiful bronze tablet, exquisitely lettered in Greek with this summary of what Dr. Luke, a Greek physician, wrote of Paul's address uh, there on Mars Hill uh, at that distinguished group of people who were gathered, these philosophers that were present. Paul began to speak, and he begins very much as John Hillsman did this morning. He begins with the Psalms. First of all, he tells about how God is spoken in creation. And then he begins to speak about God's law. And then Paul begins to narrow down, and he speaks about how God sets up a perfect standard. And that perfect standard of judgment is embodied in the one who is the Messiah, the Deliverer, and he is Jesus of Nazareth. We have to have a standard. You can't have a world without limits, but you must have a standard. This is one of the things that has troubled us about our world today. We are catapulted into a situation in which we see in Britain and France and Spain and Portugal and Germany and England, all around the world, tumult after tumult after tumult looking for a leader. Here in America, we are plunged into a political crisis the likes of which our government has never seen. We wonder what will happen. We look for a standard. Well, Paul here preaches about a standard, a standard who is God's Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, when he particularized and he got down to this one whom God had raised from the dead and thereby proved his deity, he gets an interesting response. Some of them mock at him. They laugh him to scorn. Who could be so foolish as to believe this? And we get this in some quarters today. That is derision. There were others who wanted to put it off. That is delay. We want to hold this in solution and think about it some more. And then there were others, praise God, who made a decision. Well, the derision today, what about it? There are people who embrace a Philosophy not unlike those which are put forth that Paul saw at Mars Hill. Some who think that pleasure is in itself the God to be worshipped, and so they go after pleasure. And one day they are like people who have climbed to the top of a high mountain, and they get there and find it all barren and waste, and they are burnt out and bored with it all. This is one of the things that those who work in the field of psychiatry have noticed among young people in America today. You find people old at a very young age. They have lived too fast, and they die inside very young. And they seek all kinds of excitement to revive their jaded emotions, 
and go into weird and bizarre forms of sex, strange cults. They go into drugs, all in an effort to get something going and an old, burnt-out, jaded feeling of soul. So pleasure is not it, even though we may be derided at by those who see in the Christian way a life of sacrifice. What about delay? I was playing golf one time with a man who was an agnostic. I was talking with him about faith in Jesus Christ. He got very uncomfortable about it. We talked a little bit about the time in which he would make a commitment if he ever made a commitment. I said, do you ever pray? And he said, no. And I said, would you? And he said, yes. If I had cancer, I guess I would. And I said, would you remind me of the man who asked an old country preacher one time when the best time to repent was? And the old country preacher said, why, the best time to repent is just before you die. And the man said, well, I don't know when I'm going to die. And the country preacher said, well, then if I was you, I would repent right now, <laughs> if I were you. Uh, and that's a good point. Delay is not it. You can't keep God waiting. <laughs> uh, he, you can't put him on hold and say, I'll take your call later, God. Uh, you can't do that. Well, there are two who fascinate me here. One is this man Dionysius, who is evidently a member of the court who was to pass on whether or not Paul would be allowed to preach. We are told here by Luke that Dionysius becomes a believer. He surrenders his life to the conscious lordship of Jesus. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If some preacher went before the Supreme Court of the United States and pleaded his cause for prayer and for the preaching of the gospel and the reading of God's word and one of the justices came forward and made his commitment to the lordship of Christ, well, this is a considerable thing that takes place here. The other one is not a philosopher but a woman, a courtesan. That's a high-sounding name for a low-living woman whose name is Damaris. I've often thought it would be interesting to write a novel to take these two, the philosopher and this courtesan, and speak about how they came to faith in Jesus Christ that day when Paul spoke at Mars Hill. This is a tremendous thing because it calls us from derision to serious consideration from delay to prompt and decisive action. And the message is not fruitless. I read a sermon yesterday, some man who was ridiculing Paul, saying that he failed at Mars Hill. Paul didn't fail at Mars Hill. Paul was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He bore a testimony to Jesus. And any time that happened, decisions are going to be made, some for and some against Jesus Christ. He tried to explain these people to these people that natural religion is not enough. God isn't dwelling here. This isn't the place where God is living. 
right here in this Gaither Chapel. He's here this morning through his word and through the power of the Holy Spirit and the inspiration of his son. Go to the majesty of the great cathedral in Notre Dame, I think it was started in 1211, 1065, Westminster Abbey, even before that was begun. Even get up to 1642 when they were writing the Westminster Confession of Faith, 1642 to 1648, Westminster Abbey, but God doesn't live in Westminster Abbey. He doesn't live in the Cathedral of Notre Dame. He doesn't live in Gaither Chapel. Not in a house made with hands. There's none that contains him. God lives in the temple of our heart. That's why we need to come to this point of decision. So what's the danger of going to church? Soren Kierkegaard put it this way. About the judgment, and that's the point where they ridiculed Paul, Kierkegaard said the world in which he lived reminded him of a theater in which a tremendous comedy is taking place and jokes are being cracked and hilarious laughter is going all over the audience. But the theater catches on fire and suddenly from out of the wings rushes the manager and screams to the top of his voice to the audience to run for the exits, that the theater is burning. But the audience doesn't get the point. They think the manager is telling another joke. And so they laugh and laugh and laugh. They think it's funnier, and the manager pleads, run for the exits. And they think it's all the funnier, and they laugh all the more. Well, said Kierkegaard, that's the way man is when you speak about the inevitable judgment of God to which each one of us inexorably moves toward. You can laugh in derision, but it's coming. So what's the danger? The danger is that we do not make a decision. We are like Kierkegaard's other story of the preaching goose who used to come out in the barnyard and in the most marvelous tones began to honk away and tell all the geese in the barnyard about their noble ancestors and how they used to fly over the fjords and the vast expanses of ocean, how they made tremendous formations and their wings spread was so great and they soared to lofty heights. And while he was giving his speech, the geese in the barnyard would all clap their wings and chatter away their approval of what was being said. But then the farmer would come out with big hands full of plump yellow grains of corn and scatter it. And the geese would go and eat the corn and remain fat and satisfied and content to let the words just be words and the dreams just be dreams and no action be taken. Now what's the message to us? The message to us is that there's a world all about us 
where men and women and young people are moving out into eternity, many of them never having really been confronted with the claims of Jesus as Lord of their lives. You are this morning confronted to that. You can accept him or you can reject him. If you will, he will take you and forgive you of your sins and take you where you are and work in your life and the Holy Spirit will grow in you those fruits which prove the one to whom you belong. You can give your life to him. But we who already know the Lord Jesus ought to be praying for the mission of the church to the world that we might sense the urgency far more than the victory which was celebrated at Athens regarding Marathon, but the victory which was won at Calvary when Christ died for our sins, and the victory which was won when he rose again from the dead, and we bring the message of life eternal to as many as will receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Don't just hear the message and think that somehow that makes you good, but hear the message and act upon it. Now let us receive the benediction. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and guide, be and abide with us all now and forevermore.